Father, we just thank you for your word, and, and Lord, we know that your word is truth. We, one of the ways we know that is by the way you present these characters in the Bible. And one, one passage, we see Abraham uh, like a mighty spiritual giant. In the next passage, we see him falter and fall, and, and uh, Lord, uh, we... We wonder how a man so great could do some, some of the things he does. But that's the way we all are, Lord. And that's why we, it's good that you present the Bible with warts and all, Lord, that you show us the good in people and the bad in people because we all have good and we all have bad. And the only good that we do have, Lord, comes through you and through Jesus Christ. And we just, we just thank you for the grace that he gives us. We thank you for his blood that he shed for us. And, and Lord, uh, the same blood that shed for us, you shed for Abraham. So he's going to make some big mistakes we're going to see today. And help us to learn from those mistakes, Lord. And, and, uh, but also learn that uh, you're there when we do fall and when we do falter. So, Lord, there's just some great lessons here. I ask you to teach us those lessons uh, by the power of your uh, Holy Spirit. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, this past Sunday night, I was listening to one of my favorite preachers. Uh, it's a man who preaches over in Pensacola. He's at the campus church in, in uh, Pensacola. And uh, he was preaching on Genesis chapter 14. So that perked my interest because we have been in the book of Genesis, and we just recently covered chapter 14, and it was a great story. I mean, you remember the story in chapter 14, how Abraham rescued his nephew Lot, and then uh, uh, he met Melchizedek, and he gave Melchizedek a tenth of all he had, and, and, and so it's just a really good story, and uh, this guy did a great job of telling the story, but I had a serious problem with his application. Because what his application was basically this, that, that uh, we want to emulate Abraham, this great biblical hero, and we don't want to emulate Lot, who was sort of a scoundrel. And if all we had was chapter 14, then he would be right. Uh, because, because if you look at chapter 14, Abraham certainly looks like a, some sort of super Bible hero. And if you look at Lot, he looks like some kind of scoundrel. Now, Lot really was sort of a scoundrel. But at times, Abraham could act like a scoundrel too. And that's what we're going to see today. That's the problem sometimes with topical messages. Because whenever you preach topically and you pluck a passage or a story out of its context, out of the context of not just a chapter, but out of the context of the whole Bible or the whole book, then you're in danger of presenting someone in a way that, that really doesn't tell the whole story. And you're also in a danger of setting up some kind of standard that, whereby we're expected to live up to that standard. Now, if all we saw about Abraham was what we see in chapter 14, and that's the standard, then, then all of us are in trouble because we're not always rescuing somebody. We're not always, you know, seeing the king of kings. We're not always giving everything we're supposed to give. And so that standard is set so high when you pluck stories out of the Bible like that, 
that uh, you can get yourself into trouble. And so that's why we preach verse by verse through the Bible and we get the whole story. Uh, and, 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 and the whole story of every biblical character in the Bible is shown warts and all. I mean, you see the good things about them and you see the bad things about them. Now, in the last few chapters, we have been seeing many of Abraham's strengths. I mean, we saw, uh, we did see him rescue Lot. I mean, that was a great feat that he performed there. We did see him meet Melchizedek, uh, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the king of kings. He saw him meet God, and when he saw God, he gave a tenth of all he had. In chapter 15, verse 6, we're told that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So we see him saved. Uh, and and uh, he does seem to be uh, sort of becoming some sort of super saint at this point. But he has spiritual warts too. And, and at times, Abraham's going to falter and we're going to see him uh, as he really is. Uh, we saw him as he was when he went down to Egypt. And he, he didn't believe God, he didn't trust God, so he went down to Egypt. Uh, we saw him last time as he asked for a sign. This week, we're going to see him falter in the worst way. He's going to make his biggest mistake. And that's what we're going to be looking at in chapter number 16. Now, as we come to chapter number 16, a few years have passed uh, since the last chapter. Uh, since he saw that great sign, remember the Lord gave him that sign of the, the smoking furnace and the, and the uh, burning torch, which was a, actually a, a symbolic showing of the gospel itself. And we talked about that last week. But now, ten years have passed, or a few years have passed, and ten years since he's been in Canaan. And Abraham is 85, and Sarah is 75. And they still don't have a son. And they're keenly aware that Sarah is barren. And the older you get, the more, I don't know if you can get more barren, but you're certainly not going to get more fruitful the older you get. And so they realize that, hey, this thing isn't happening. And now they've reached a point where God is silent. They're not hearing from God. And so they figured they'd better do something about this. You ever do that? So they're going to take matters into their own hands. And let's look at how they do this, looking at beginning in verse number 1 of chapter number 16. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now here's what you want to take notice of in this passage right here. Looking down here, you notice that Hagar is Sarah's slave. She's her handmaid. Now, what did that mean in that culture? In that culture, that meant that she was Sarah's property to do with as Sarah pleased. And so she realizes that, she thinks about that, and so she devises this plan uh, that she thinks will fit the promises of God. And so, uh, by the way, let let me add something there. In case you don't know it, God doesn't need our help uh, in fulfilling his promises. He doesn't need our help at all unless he asks for it. And if he doesn't ask for it, we're a lot better off letting God 
fulfill his promises on his own and staying out of his business. Uh, it keep you out of a lot of trouble. All right, now, uh, go to verse number two. So she's got this plan in her mind, and she's going to tell Abram about, Abram about it. So Sarah said to Abram, let's, let's look at this thing, Abram. Let's look at it logically here for a minute. See now, the Lord has restrained me. I mean, here's the Lord saying, we're going to have children, but I'm barren. So that doesn't make any sense. So he's restraining me from bearing children. So he wants us to have a child. So let's see how we can figure out how we can have a child. So he says, here's what you need to do. He said, she says, please go into my maid that I own, and perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Now, you see what, you understand her thinking right here. Sarah is, uh, Hagar is Sarah's servant, her slave. And so if Hagar has children, who do those children legally belong to? Well, when in slavery, they belong to the master, the slave owner. And so they would belong to her. And so, hey, we, she says, look, we can have a child by this woman. It'll be my child, and we'll make it the child of promise. And Abram says, wow, that's pretty smart. And so he heeded the voice of Sarah. So, so you see what she's doing right here. Now, Sarah comes off here as kind of a domineering woman, a domineering wife, but she really wasn't. I mean, that's the way she's presented most of the times when, you, when, when people exegete this text. But you've got to balance this with the rest of the Scripture again. And remember what Peter said over in 1 Peter. He actually exhorted women to be like Sarah. He says over there, as Sarah who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Look, she didn't make Abraham do anything he didn't want to do right here. No more than Eve made Adam eat the fruit. Adam disobeyed God when he ate the fruit. And Abram's going to be the one who has culpability here. He's going to be responsible for what's going on right here. They both were doubting, and they both wanted to speed up God's plans. And that's exactly what they're doing. But here's something else I want you to think about for a minute. She loved Abraham. She loved Abraham, and she could see the pain in his face, in his heart, because he didn't have a son I mean, he, she heard people mock him, your name is Father, and you don't even have a son. And she could see that pain, and she wanted to do something for her husband. I really think here she's thinking not just about herself. I think more than anything else, she's thinking about Abraham. And, and, and I think all of us are guilty of doing what Sarah and Abraham do right here. We're impatient with God. God tells us he's going to do something for us. He doesn't do it on our time schedule. And we get impatient with God and we begin to doubt. And and I've seen it over and over and over again. In my own life and as a pastor, people take matters into their own hands. They don't wait on God. And when we do that, you can bank on it. You're going to make a mess of things. We're going to make a mess of things when we don't wait on God. All right, now let's read verse number three. It says, then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid. Now watch this again. God takes notice or or lets us know that her maid is the Egyptian and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And Abram had dwelt at this point 10 years 
in the land of Canaan. So he's been there a while. You understand his impatience here. It's been 10 years. It's been longer than 10 years since he was given that promise the first time. And so he's been in Canaan 10 years now. And, and here's something else I want you to notice. This is the second time that we're told that Hagar is an Egyptian. Why does God keep repeating that? Why does he call her an Egyptian? Let me tell you what. Because there's no doubt that they picked up Hagar when Abram went down on that uh, ill-advised trip down to Egypt. When he disobeyed, really didn't disobey God, but when he doubted God and thought God was going to let him die in Canaan, and so he went all the way down into Egypt, and he picks up this handmaid there. And there is a great lesson for us there, because I've told you before, Egypt is like a type of the world. It's like... When we're saved, we're like the Israelites. We come out of Egypt. We come out of the Egypt, usually right into the wilderness, and then maybe later on into the promised land, and then ultimately to heaven. That's kind of a, a picture that we get of, the, of our salvation through the Israelites. So whenever we go down to Egypt, it's like going back to the world. When a believer goes back to the world, back to the things they used to do before they were saved, uh, back, to, back to not trusting God and saying, I'm going to take these matters into my own hand. That's what it means to go back to Egypt. And so the, the lesson I think God is trying to show us here was that they wouldn't even be in this situation if they hadn't gone down to Egypt and picked up this handmaid. And whenever you go back to Egypt, whenever you go back to the world, you can bank on it again that you're probably going to pick up something down there that's going to mess you up for the rest of your life. And that's exactly what happened here. So uh, we want to be careful with that. So here's Abram now, and he's waited 10 years for a son. Sarah's still as barren as she ever was, and they figured they've got to help God along with his plans. And uh, so Abram doesn't just have a baby. Uh, he makes Hagar his wife. Let's read verse number four down. It says, so he went into Hagar and she conceived, she got pregnant. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Now, see what's going on with Hagar here. Here's Hagar and she's been a slave all her life. She was a slave in Egypt. She was in really in a very difficult bondage down in Egypt. And she's in a pretty good position because she's the, 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 the slave of the matriarch of this great family clan, a very rich family clan. And so I'm sure she's treated really well. But it's still, nobody likes being a slave. And now all of a sudden, Abraham's taken her as his wife. So in her mind, she doesn't have to put up with any of Sarah's mess any longer. In fact, Sarah might be putting up with her mess pretty soon. That's what she's thinking. And so Sarah became despised in her eyes. She no longer felt she had to answer to Sarah. She had to look up to Sarah. She was carrying the baby of the patriarch of this clan. And, so, and she was his wife. And so, Sarah, you better look out. I'm the one carrying the child. And so uh, read, let's read verse number five. Uh, then Sarah said to Abram, Sarah realizes she's made a big mistake now. And, and listen how she turns this on Abram. My wrong is upon you. In other, in other words, uh, I made a mistake, and you shouldn't have let me make that mistake. This is on you. 
and, and you're going to have to do something about this. Guys, I know your wife's never done anything like that. Mine certainly hasn't. I would never, never be blamed for any mistakes in our life. Really, I'm not. She doesn't do that. So that's good. She says, I gave up my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, when she saw that she had gotten pregnant, I became despised in her eyes. Now, the Lord judged between me and you. That's a statement. In other words, the Lord put this on you. You're the one get judged, not me. You're the one who did wrong here. And if you don't fix this, the Lord's going to judge you is basically what she's saying. So Abram, watch Abram here. And, and, and look at what a despicable character he shows up to be in this chapter. He's taking this woman as his wife. He's gotten her pregnant. And he's ready to throw her under the bus. I mean, this is the same guy in the last, uh, in chapter 14, that looked like a superhero. But now he looks as bad as Lot to me. So, so Abram said to Sarah, indeed, your mate is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah, and what did Sarah do? Hey, she took back charge again. And she dealt with her harshly. And, and Hagar then fled from Sarah's presence. So Abram basically said, hey, hey, she's yours to do with as you please. And that's not a very noble response. Not at all. And Sarah ran with it and, and, and started giving Hagar a hard time. And what did Hagar do? She fled towards her home country of Egypt. She went back to Egypt. That's what we all tend to do. We don't like our circumstances. We all tend to want to go back to drinking. We want to go back to carousing. We want to go back to, to cursing. We want to go back to all the things we used to, watching TV and R-rated movies and everything we used to do because we think, hey, the Lord deserted us. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. So she's heading back to Egypt, back towards her home country. But let me tell you what, she never would have made it if the Lord didn't intervene because that is a rough journey and she left probably with very little supplies that's the same journey that the israelites made in the wilderness but if you remember they wouldn't have made it either if god hadn't provided the manna if he hadn't provided the water from the rock and so she's going to die down there and that baby's going to die uh uh if somebody doesn't show up to help and somebody does the lord you know the lord is always a hero. He's always noble. He always does the right thing. Don't you love the Lord? And so he steps in. Here's this Egyptian maid, a piece of property, a piece of chattel. And nobody really cares about this point. A pregnant Egyptian maid out in the desert, ready to die. And God says, I'm not going to let her die. She's been wronged. And look at verse number 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. I mean, she's at the last spring of water before she would head down to Egypt. And she she was never going to make this journey. And the angel of the Lord finds her. Who's the angel of the Lord? He's none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. 
I got to tell you something. You read all of Genesis and read all about the appearances of Jesus Christ in Genesis. And he appears as much in Genesis as he does in the Gospels. He's everywhere in Genesis. And that's why when I hear people talk about there's some kind of division between the Bible. You know, there is an old covenant and there is a new covenant. But the God is the same God. The same God here that's appearing to to Hagar is the same God that hung on a cross for you and me. The God of the Gospels. He's the same God. And he appears to her and and, uh, he says to her. And and watch what he says. Hagar, Sarah's maid. Now look what he calls her. He, He says, you're Sarah's maid. That's your lot in life. You might not like it. But that's where I brought you at this point. You are Sarah's maid. I don't know where you're at in your life. And you might have some title. You might be a maid. You might be a a teacher. You might be a, a, a doctor. You might be a preacher. Whatever you are. In God's eyes, if you're a child of God, that's who you are. You might be a housewife. That's That's who you are. And he doesn't see that as any less of a position than than, than being president of the United States. That's the position he's placed you in. And it's important that you're there. It's important that you're, wherever you're at, that you're doing God's will. And he says, Sarah Hagar, Sarah's maid. And he asked her two questions here. And he knows where she's come from, and he knows where she's going. But he, but he asked her these two questions, so he, she'll ponder where she's come from and where she's going. He says to her, where have you come from and where are you going? And she doesn't answer the question. She says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. I hate Sarah the way she's treating me. They've done me wrong and I'm fleeing. Now, whenever we begin to move ahead of God, We try to do our own thing. Maybe we go back to Egypt. Back to the things of the world. God's going to ask us those two questions. He's going to ask us, where have you come from? And where are you going if you keep doing what you're doing? Because he wants us to ponder the move that we're making. We forget sometimes where we've come from. I mean, Hagar forgot where she had come from. She had come from Egypt. She was in bondage in Egypt and probably under a harsh taskmaster who gave her bread and water or a little food every day. Why in the world do you want to go back there? Jesus is saying, where have you come from? I mean, we were under the taskmaster too. We were under, under, the, the, under the rule of the devil before we got saved. And he was doing everything he could to destroy us. Why do we want to go back to those things? Where have we come from? And if we keep doing what we're doing, where are we going to go? Hagar, where are you going? I mean, if you go back to, to Egypt, you're going back to those pagan religions. You're going back to a life of sin. You're going back to extreme bondage. You're Sarah's maid. Why do you want to do that? Why do we ever want to do that? Where are we going? The Lord sees us moving outside of his will and he says, where have you come from and where are you going? 
Now, Hagar, again, she doesn't answer the question. She only tells why she's fleeing. And she says, I'm fleeing the presence of my mistress, Sarah. And you think the Lord knew that? He certainly knew exactly where she was and what she was doing and why she was doing it. He saw everything that was going on here. He saw the wrongs that were being committed against her. And so in verse 9, it says, The angel of the Lord says to her, He said, Return to your mistress, to your master, and submit yourself under her hand. That is the best thing for you to do. Now, I don't think that's something she wanted to hear. But God's telling her what's best for her. Does God ever tell you some things you don't want to hear? I mean, how many times do we want to cut and run from our circumstances? We don't like our circumstances. We don't like where we're living. We don't like our job. We don't like our boss. And we pray about it and we're thinking God's going to say, quit that job. You're, God, you're, you're, God, you're not being treated fair there. I want you to be treated fair. I want you to be babied and pampered and have everything you want. You know what he says? More often than not, go back to where I placed you. Go back to that location where it rains all the time. Go back to that job you don't always like. Go back to that boss you don't always like. And stay there until I tell you to do otherwise. And here's the thing. You're going to see this here in a minute. If the Lord wants us to stay put, you know, more often than not, I'd say always, I could say always to this, He wants us to stay there so he can bless us. And so he can use us to bless others. That's why he wants us to stay there. And so he tells Hagar, he says, go back. And and now he's going to tell her, if you'll go back, you'll live. And I'm going to bless you in a mighty way. And he tells her about the blessing now in, in the next few verses. He says, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multiply. There'll be so many of them you can't count. He doesn't say as many as the stars like Abraham uh, or as many as the sand on the sea, but there are going to be so many you won't be able to count them. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're with child and you shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has heard your affliction. You get that? The Lord has heard your affliction. I mean, I don't know that Hagar said a word, but the Lord heard her broken heart. He heard her pain. He heard her distress. He heard her depression. You know, the same God, Hagar's God is my God. And the Lord hears, he's Ishmael. 
He hears. He hears my heart. He hears my distress. He hears my pain. He knows how I feel. And in time, He's going to help me through that. I can bank on that. Hey, if He go way out in the desert and save this little handmaid that has this son that's going to grow up, somebody nobody else in the world, nobody else in the world cares a thing about. You think He's not going to hear your pain and your distress and your cares? He's definitely going to hear them. Now, that is really good news for Hagar. But it's not so much good news for the rest of the world. And it's certainly not good news for Abraham and his descendants. Because I want you to look at this fascinating prophecy that comes now in verse number 12. Look at verse number 12. He shall be a wild man. Literally, excuse my Hebrew here, he shall be a wild ass. I've been called that before. Some of y'all have too. A wild donkey, a wild ass. Uh, in my older days, that's what I was. I just didn't have any rhyme or reason in what I was doing. A wild man. That's what he's going to be. And watch this. His hand shall be against every man. Look at, isn't this amazing? And every man's hand will be against him. That's pretty amazing too. Now people, you look at the relationships we have now with the Arabs. It's a very, very strained relationship. Our best ally outside of Israel in that whole area is Turkey. And that relationship between the United States and Turkey is held by a thin piece of thread. And the only thing that holds it together in that we like each other, what holds it together is we're looking out after each other's interests. And that's starting to change right now. And, and so you see the Arabs against the rest of the world and the rest of the world against the Arabs. Now, Russia's down there now, and they're playing buddy-buddy with them. But again, that is a strained relationship. And if they could do it without the Russians, they'd do it without the Russians. The Syrians would. So, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell, not in the presence of the rest of the world, but in the presence of all his brethren. That is exactly what's going on now. And they can't even really dwell with each other. So you, you have this amazing prophecy. I mean, and, and you, you talk about a wart on Abraham's character. Hey, this wart's going to turn into a cancer, a very great cancer that's going to cause Israel problems for the rest of their history. Now, let's go back to the story of Hagar, verse number 13. I love this. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. Elroy. Elroy. I remember when I was in school, we had kids named Elroy. And I thought, what a stupid name. I'd hate to be called Elroy. What a great name. 
Elroy means the God who sees. The Lord who sees. The God who sees, literally. And, and she asked him a question. She says, she asked a question to herself here. Listen to what she asked. Have I also seen the Lord who sees? Have I also, has this man, this angel of the Lord appeared to me, who has appeared to me, is he the God who sees? He certainly knows about my circumstances. He certainly knows what I ought to do. He's got to be God. Yes, Hagar, you've seen the God who sees. The God who not only sees you, the God who sees everyone all the time. He's Ishmael, the God who hears. He's Elroy, the God who sees. I'm reminded of that great story in the Gospels, early on in the Gospel of John, when Philip brings Nathaniel to the Lord and he says, uh, I want you to meet, Philip, I want you, I, I mean, Philip says to Nathaniel, I want you to meet the guy we believe is the Messiah. And uh, Nathaniel banners back and forth with the Lord and And then the Lord said to him, this is where he got his attention. He said, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? He was a pious man, and I have no doubt what he was doing under the fig tree. He was praying to the Lord. He was praying to the Lord, and all of a sudden he's in presence of the angel of the Lord, the El Roy, the God who sees. Ishmael, the God who hears. The God who was hearing Nathaniel's prayer. The God who was seeing Nathaniel pray. If he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, you think maybe he sees you when you get down on your knees and you pray to the Lord? You think he hears your pain? You think he hears your prayers? You better believe he does. That's why shame on us when we take our prayer life so flippantly. And we don't give the Lord the attention to his presence that he deserves. So here's Hagar, I mean, seeing the God who sees, the angel of the Lord, the same God who Abraham saw in chapter 14 when he came back from the battle against the four kings and he had won that battle and he gave a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, uh, uh, Melchizedek, the king of peace. It's the same God that Hagar saw. Hagar saw. It's the same God that Gideon saw. It's the same God that Joshua saw. It's the same God that Samson's parents saw. And now he, she realizes that that God has appeared to her and has given her some very wise instruction. And she no doubt is going to follow that instruction. And so she builds a memorial to the Lord. And then we see that in verse number 14. Therefore the well was called by Hagar, beer, which means well, la ha roy, the one who sees. Observe it, the author says. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. And then in verse 15, so Hagar went back home. And I, I, I'm sure there was some kind of reunion there and some apologies made. And whether or not that was the case or not, this woman had seen God. And she was going to obey God. 
And so Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael, the God who hears. I don't know if he believed that. Or he would have said, Lord, I'm ready for that son. Tell me if I'm going to have that son again, that son of promise. I I actually think at this point they think maybe Ishmael is the son of promise. Because verse number 15 says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And that means that Sarah was 75. Six years old. And. They're going to have to wait. And so this is not going to be. The last wart. In. Abram's spiritual. Character. We're going to see more as we go along. Because he's having. To wait. You know I grew up as a young boy. Going to Sunday school every week. And every time I went to Sunday school, I would hear some great feat accomplished by some super saint in the Bible. In fact, they've got these super saint series on TVs, these super heroes of the Bible. I mean, I heard that story about Abraham rescuing Lot and meeting Melchizedek. And all, I, I, how many times we were told the story about David and Goliath and David defeating Goliath and and Noah building the ark and saving mankind and saving all of the animals and and uh, Elijah up on Mount Carmel defeating the prophets of Baal Gideon and his 300 mighty warriors defeating hundreds of thousands of Midianites but I didn't hear much about Abram and Hagar I don't ever remember hearing that story in Sunday school. I know, you know, they didn't want to get into the sexual implications of it, so that was one of the reasons. I didn't hear about David and Bathsheba. I didn't know who Bathsheba was until I was 17 or 18 years old, probably. I never heard it preached. I, I didn't hear many stories about, Abraham, about Noah getting drunk. I don't, how many of you heard stories about Noah getting drunk when you were, when you were young kids? Or Elijah. I mean, Elijah's my hero. Other than Jesus Christ, Elijah's like my hero. But he runs from a woman. He kills 600 prophets of Baal and a woman threatens him. And he runs a hundred and so miles. And he doesn't stop to eat. He's so afraid. And Gideon, no sooner does a God... Does God give him all of these victories? He's knocked down all the idols. What does he do? He builds up an idol to himself. See, that's why it's so important to study biblical characters verse by verse, to see them warts and all. Because if you don't, you get this idea somehow that Christians can always live on a mountaintop of victory. And if we don't somehow live always on a mountaintop of victory, then somehow we're not really God's children. We're failures. We don't, live, we don't make the mark. We don't make the grade. Well, listen, none of us make the grade. None of these biblical characters make the grade. We've all got warts. We've all got something wrong with them. We're all flawed characters. 
And when we do have victories, we can't brag about our victories. Well, who gives us our victories? The Lord gives us our victories. And I tell you what, whenever you got a victory, you can bank on it right behind that victory. You're going to have a defeat. And your warts are going to show up again. Because, and I'm not saying the Lord wouldn't give us victories all the time if we lived as we should before the Lord, but none of us do. That's why we have the gospel. See, that's why we have the cross. Because that's where we find forgiveness for our defeats. And man, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of defeats. A lot of defeats. So you know what? I'm glad Abraham had warts. I'm glad he had warts. Because if by faith he had lived, and he, had, he was the father of faith, if by faith he had lived a perfect, victorious life, then that would mean I would be doomed. Because I don't and I can't, no matter how hard I try. So, just like Abraham, I need God's forgiveness and I need his grace when I fail. You know why? So God can carry me back to a place of victory. That's where he wants us all to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that You don't demand perfection from us in this life. Lord, you've made us perfect. And you're going to make us practically perfect over time. Lord, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you, Lord, recognize our failures as being part of who we are in the flesh. Lord, we ask that you limit our failures by your grace. That you give us great victories like you gave Abraham. But Lord, we are so grateful for the cross when we fall. We're so grateful that you've paid for our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. That great victory that he won on the cross is our victory to embrace, Lord. Throughout our lives, even when we falter, Lord, we know that we can be victorious and made righteous and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I just thank you for his grace. I thank you for his power. I thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.